Acts chapter 4. I had Psalm 120 read this morning because of the last verse that's there. That's where I get the title of this sermon. I think it aptly applies to Acts chapter 4 as well as our own current day and age. When you begin to read in Psalm 120, that begins a short group of psalms. 120, I think, through 134 or 135. There's a, several small psalms there, and you'll notice that they say psalms of ascent. And you have, if you can see in your mind's eye, a caravan of Jewish folks heading to Jerusalem from some far off place, and going there to celebrate a feast. And they would sing these psalms together on their way. And it was to prepare their minds to engage in whatever feast they were going to be engaging in. In this particular psalm, you have a gentleman who lives in a place called Meshach and Kedar, which are known in the day as very um, filled with sin. It is pagan. It is uh, not friendly to the Jewish folks. As you can see, as he's writing, he talks about his distress. He talks about folks who lie and are deceitful. And at the very end of the psalm, he mentions what it's like to live in this place. I want to speak. I'm a person of peace, but when I speak, they always want war. They always want to speak contradic uh, contradictory uh, words or have some sort of debate or they hate what I have to say altogether. And here I am a guy, I want peace. I'm a follower of God. But these folks always seem to want war. It's a reminder to us to be followers of God and to speak truth in love. There's still going to be folks who want war. Folks who hate that message of truth, that message of peace. I think that is applicable to Acts chapter 4 and to our own current day and age. I heard it in the prayer this morning. I was in a conversation with some friends yesterday. And most of us can see and feel the pressure of our history and heritage being under attack and erased on a daily basis. And it's disturbing to us. We know that our faith or the exercise of our faith is under direct assault under the so-called Equality Act. If that does indeed become law, then our faith and the free exercise of it will be under direct assault with the full backing of our government. You and I have a message of peace because we follow the Prince of Peace. And we have a gospel of peace, a good news, a good message about peace and reconciliation between God and man. But increasingly, as we speak that, there will be those who really want war. They have no desire for this truth. And they reject this truth. That Christ is the only way. That Jesus is the only way. To heaven in Acts chapter 4 this is their message in verse 12 there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must we must be saved you hear me quote that frequently because this is the message of the Christian faith 
We believe that Jesus is exclusive and that there is no other name. There is no other way to heaven. There's no other way to God. Jesus himself said, no one, no one comes unto the Father but by me. So Jesus is exclusive in the things that he says. We are followers of him and there is no other way to God except through him. And that is a very disturbing message to most of the world. To be that exclusive. You and I, we have to take this message. We're under obligation as followers of Jesus to take this message to that world. We're going to be met with hostility because of it. As we read in Acts chapter 4 today, it really is a continuation of what we found in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, the body of Christ, went into a world, into their own community, and there they began to preach the gospel of peace. They lifted a man, a lame man, to his feet and pointed him in the direction of God. And they healed him, and not just healed him physically, but Jesus healed him spiritually. And he became a follower with them. That caused a great scene, a great uh, group began to surround Peter and John. And they had this audience and he began to preach. And there in chapter 3 verse 19 he calls on them to repent and be converted. Here he stands in Jerusalem at the temple calling on Jewish folks to leave their faith behind. Their Jewish faith and begin to follow Jesus. Based on this miracle and this message that they have just done. So that brings us to chapter 4 verse 1. Well, we're going to find some folks who are not happy with what these folks have to say. They're not happy with the message of the church. And they are greatly disturbed and they get all riled up in verses 1 to 4. Now, as they, that is Peter and John, chapter 3, were continuing to preach, as they spoke to the people, the priests, captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening however many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men became about 5,000 Acts chapter 2, there's 3,000 plus. And then on a daily basis, they're converting people. Now, we have 5,000 people. But here's the picture. What I regard as the club, the inner circle, the Jewish establishment, they're really upset with these rubes, Peter and John. Matter of fact, we know that's what they think of them, verse 13. They're ignorant and unlearned. That's their perception of Peter and John. And that's their perception of the church. These are ignorant and unlearned men. Who are they to be standing where we work talking about this message? Why are they here upsetting things and turning everything on, on its head? So you have a priest and the captain of the temple. You have the, the temple police here. And they're going to arrest them. You have the Sadducees. We all know what the Sadducees believe. They don't believe in a thing called the resurrection. They never bought into it. Even in the, in the Old Testament. They did not believe in this thing called the resurrection. Matter of fact, they didn't believe in anything miraculous. 
They scoffed at the idea of the Israelites walking across the Red Sea on dry ground. They scoffed at the idea of the idea of the, the Red Sea being parted and walls of water and walking across on dry land. That was absurd to them. Things like that just don't happen. They would try to explain it away. They were rationalists and naturalists, and there was nothing supernatural, not, let alone angels and resurrection. That's just absurd. Things like that can't happen and don't happen. And so here they are. This is basically the Sanhedrin, the, the supreme court of the Jewish people in the belly of the beast at the temple of Jerusalem. And here we have Peter and John preaching this message about hope, and reconciliation, that hum human beings can be reconciled to God by the preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And here's something else. It's not just that they preached resurrection. There was a group of Jews, not the Sadducees, that did believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees believed in it. They knew something about it. Also, if you read carefully in John chapter 11, Martha understood it. Because Jesus was talking to her about the resurrection. And she kind of, yeah, I know there's a resurrection. But that's so far off in the future. That's the very last day of earth. That was her view of it. The idea of Jesus being resurrected. The idea of her brother Lazarus being resurrected. He can't do that. That's crazy. But they did understand some form or fashion of resurrection. What's really got them riled up here is they're preaching about resurrection in the name of Jesus. They're preaching an exclusive message that Christ has risen from the dead and that we serve a risen Savior. And we're trying to point you in the direction of Him, which means you, do not, you don't need to do a 360, but a 180. And turn from this temple and this Levitical priesthood and this cap captain of the temple and these Sadducees, turn from them and start to follow Jesus. Well, no wonder they're upset. They're going to lose their following. They're going to lose their money. They're going to lose their power. They're going to lose their position. Everything is at stake. And we can't have it. This guy's got to go. They already did it to Jesus, and they want to do it to Peter and John. And so they take him, and they want to silence them, and they want to end their preaching. And so they arrest them, verse 3. The goal here is to intimidate and to silence the church. To beat them into submission. That they no longer speak in the name of Jesus. So. But they have a, another problem here. In verse 4 you have 5,000 people. <laughs> 5,000 people who believe. And guess what they're going to be talking about when they go home. They're going to be talking about their conversion. They're going to be talking about their new faith. Their newfound faith. And they're going to be talking about the priest in the temple coming to arrest and mistreat Peter and John and put them in prison for preaching this message that they now believe. And so it's not just 5,000 people, but now that message is going to spread. So they have a problem, and they are greatly disturbed, not just at the preaching, but at the prospect of this message spreading all throughout Jerusalem. So they need to shut them up. They need to shut this operation down. They need to make this thing go away. Because it's nothing but trouble for them. And so they are riled up at the preaching of Jesus. So here's what we do. 
want to notice I have on the screen verses 5 through 17. It's not really that simple. We're going to hop around this text a little bit and just watch how they work. First thing that we're going to notice in how they operate and the tactics that they use. What you're viewing here, I know we're all familiar with this new term called cancel culture. Where we cancel everything that we disagree with. This is the original cancel culture here. The, same, the tactics are much the same as it was then as it is now. Notice first, the first thing they want to do is intimidate them. Verse 3. They're going to try to right away put this fire out. If you can in your mind's eye, think about putting out a small fire in your backyard or something. Start stomping it out with your feet. That's what we're doing spiritually here. They take hold of them. They take custody. It's evening, so they got to abide by some sort of law. And so it's evening, so they're just going to take them and throw them in jail for the night. But what is the purpose of this? To stop the preaching, first of all. Stop the bleeding. And then they're going to bring them out the next day, and they're going to intimidate them. That's verses 5 through 7. It came to pass on the next day... That the rulers, the elders, scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together in Jerusalem. This, this is an away game. <laughs> These guys have home court or home field advantage. You can see the corruption and the nepotism here. You've got family. You've got the high priest. You've got rulers. You've got elders. You've got scribes. And they're all surrounding them, Peter and John. Peter and John are greatly outnumbered. They're going to, this is a mob mentality. We're going to shut you down. We're going to intimidate you. We're going to put the fear of God in you. We're going to make you realize who you're messing with. That this, isn't, this message of Jesus doesn't belong here. And we're going to make you understand this in no uncertain terms. And we're going to make this go away. And so they surround him by this group of people. After having spent the night in jail. So the first tactic is to arrest and then to intimidate. Let me tell you, when you walk, here they are in front of the Sadducees and the priests and the rulers and the elders... And what he is essentially the Sanhedrin. That's an intimidating thing. I've been in courtrooms with folks that I wasn't even the one in trouble. <laughs> but walking in there and having to talk with the judge in a real live court setting where this person's sentence hangs in the balance, that's an intimidating prospect. It feels odd and awkward and out of place. And here they are greatly outnumbered. It is for the express purpose of intimidation. But if that didn't work, here's what else we're going to do. Verse 13 and verse 14. I believe that this is what they call in debate or logic the ad hominem. That if you can't answer with facts, if you can't answer the argument, we're going to shout and call you names. That's what we're going to do. Verse 13 and 14. 
When Peter saw the boldness, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and unlearned men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. These guys are just a couple of fishermen from Galilee, which that didn't come out in the scriptures a whole lot. But those who study background things and cultural things, there was a divide between Jerusalem Jews and Galilean Jews. The Jerusalem Jews, Judea Jews, hey, we're in charge of the temple. We're the special ones. Yeah, those Galileans, they might be Jewish people, and they're part of the chosen group, but we, we are the guards of truth, the guardians of truth. We are superior to them. When we are the ones who have been entrusted this, they felt superior to even the Galilean Jews. Now, you take and put on top of that, these guys are fishermen. These are blue-collar guys, man. They... They just go out and fish. These aren't guys who were educated in the temple. They didn't sit with the high priest. They didn't sit in the, in the temple schools. They didn't sit at the best feet of the teachers. Who are these people? These are ignorant and unlearned, uneducated men. And here they try to stand and subvert everything we're trying to do. They're trying to unhinge and undo everything that we're trying to accomplish. And so they have this quandary. The message is being heard in its simplicity and it's being believed. And so, what are we going to do? They can't answer the question, so we're going to call them names. And this is a tactic that still goes on today. If you can't answer the argument, then you just shout and you call names. And you try to belittle your opponent. But you never answer the argument. You never deal with the facts. You just shout down and you call names. This is nothing new. They did this to Jesus. Twice in the New Testament you'll find that he silenced his opponents. But more than once you'll find them calling him a glutton. They'll call him a lazy glutton. They'll call him a drunk. They'll call him one of Satan's minions. Casting out demons by Beelzebub. They called him names because they couldn't answer the argument. They did it to Paul. When he found himself in Athens and he was preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection, they drug him into this place and they said, let us see what this babbler has to say in Acts chapter 17. But you know what that word babbler means? Seed picker. Let's see what this little ignorant seed picker has to say. What that meant was they perceived that Paul was just this guy who took a little bit of this philosophy and a little bit of this religion and a little bit of this thought and a little bit of this favorite guy and he put it all together and he presented this new philosophy of life, this new religion, this new thing. But they didn't take him seriously, so they called him names. This little ignorant seed picker. That's how they perceived Paul, some sort of charlatan. And to this day, that is what happens. How did these guys look at Peter and John with this simple message? 
of the resurrection. Ignorant and unlearned fishermen. We don't need to listen to them. So, this is the argument that is still used. We still have this simple message all these years later. Some 2,000 years later, we still preach Christ and Him crucified. We still believe. I don't know if you believe, but I believe Jesus Christ is the only hope of all humanity. That the resurrection is all that we have. The, the hope and the remedy for our sin and the hope that we have of life beyond here. And I know that there are people who find that to be absurd and ignorant and we've outgrown that. So if they can't answer the argument, then they'll probably call you names. And they'll shout and scream and try to shout you down. Third thing we're going to notice is the action. The action that is taken against them, verse 16 and 17. They have this guy in verse 14 who is standing there with him. And everybody knows him that he has been healed. But in verse 16 they say, what shall we do to these men? Notice that they're willfully ignorant against the evidence that is right in front of them. What are we going to do with these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them is evident, undeniable. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We can't answer the argument. We know it's true, but we hate these guys, and we've got to get rid of them. Verse 17 but so that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. I don't want to hear the name of Jesus anywhere in Jerusalem is what they're saying. They're going to bring them together. They're going to put them in front of that group and they will severely threaten them. They will be willfully ignorant of the facts they will willfully ignore the thing that they can see with their own eyes as to be true. They are the guys who walk in and out of this temple all the time. They know that this man was set in front of the gate called Beautiful day after day after day asking for alms. They know who he is. They know what happened to him. But the goal is to stop the spread of what they perceive as a cancer that's going to kill Jerusalem. And they want to put out the fire, so they severely threaten them. And they demand they speak no more in the name of Jesus. Unless we think, man, that's just terrible. That's exactly what's been happening to this country for the last 40 years, plus years. I don't want to hear the name of Jesus in school. I don't want to hear the name of Jesus in the town square. I don't want to hear the name of Jesus. And they just keep beating us back further and further and further away from the things that are our lives. They beat us into submission. They put us in our church building and say, you keep it there. You talk there, you keep it there. Don't bring it outside. And they demand that the name of Jesus is heard no more. So, they rail against the church. What's the church going to do? Here's what they do. What they do is they gather their stuff and they run and they hide. They're like, okay, man, we're not going to do that again. That's crazy. That's not what they do at all. In verse 18, 
So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Can't help ourselves. You know, I didn't come here looking for a fight or pick a fight, but I'm going to tell you this. I know what I have seen and I know what I've heard. I walked with this Jesus. I listened to his sermons. I watched him raise the dead. I watched him cleanse the lepers. I watched him cause the blind to, be, to see. Watch this. I was a witness to it. I know that there was a time I spent all night out fishing and I didn't catch anything. And at his word, I caught so many fish, my nets broke. I know what I have seen. I know what I have heard. I watched this man, Jesus, that I walked around with for three years be put on a cross. Delivered into the hands of pagans by envious Jewish people. I watched him hang there on a cross. I watched him die. I watched him lay in a tomb. And I know that that tomb is now empty. I can't help but speak of the things that I have seen and the things that I know and have witnessed. This same, this same John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I have seen him. I have heard him. I have touched him. I have eaten with him. I know he's real and you can't tell me he's not real. And you're not going to stop me from preaching and teaching. As a matter of fact, why would I stop preaching when I have found the cure to death? He got up from a grave. He got up. The tomb was found empty. And again, I say that is what separates us from the rest of the world religions. There is not another so-called world religion out there that can offer such hope for the remedy of sin or hope beyond this life. Islam still makes their pilgrimage to Mecca and they go and they walk around a tomb where they recognize the fact that Muhammad is dead and he died and he's still dead and he's going to stay dead and he's going to be in that grave until Jesus comes back and tells him to get up. And that is politically incorrect. But it's true. Our Savior, our Lord, our Christ, our prophet, our priest, our king, the one we follow, left heaven, came to this earth, put on flesh, and died. Shedding his blood for the remission of our sins, went into a grave and rose the third day. And Peter and John says, you're not going to stop me from talking about it. It's the only hope that you have. It's the only hope that I have. It's the only hope the world has. And so they're going to preach it. As a matter of fact, if you go back over here to verse 8, they're not afraid to say it even then. I told you they tried to set them in, in this mob and they tried to intimidate them. But look at what Peter does. Verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people, elders of Israel, I'm not afraid of you. I'm calling you out by name. You need to listen to me. If we this day are judged for the good deed that we've done to this helpless man by what means he's been made he uh, well, healthy? Let it be known. Let there be no mistake. Let me just lay it open for you. Let it be known to you all how all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, so there's not just any mistake, it's just some guy named Jesus. This is Jesus, the Christ, the one who is from Nazareth. 
one that you hate, the one that you put on the cross. It's him by his authority, by his power, whom you crucified, you murdered him. God raised him from the dead. It's by this man he stands before you whole. Let there be no mistake about it. It's by the source of power and authority of God. So the first thing they're going to, what is their response? They're going to preach. Even if they want to tell you you can't preach, we're going to preach. I'm telling you, in the coming weeks, if you see the headlines where they have passed this so-called Equality Act, it's the same threat. It is the exact same threat. You are not allowed to freely exercise your belief and faith in Christ and the authority of the Scriptures. And you're going to have to have the resolve to say, I'm going to preach this anyway. I believe Christ is the only way. He is the only hope. And there may be some consequences to that. There may be some very real consequences to that. Some of our own brethren in Canada right now are facing these things. We're going to preach. We're going to talk about the authority and the help and the healing that comes from God, verses 8 to 10. We're going to talk about Christ being the chief cornerstone, verse 11. And the only source of salvation, verse 12. But beyond preaching, look at what they did, verse 23. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they heard that, they raised their voice to God and with one accord said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea. And all that is in them. Number one, first thing they're going to acknowledge. Even though these bad things are happening, they just spent the night in jail because of preaching the gospel. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. So they did. They got in trouble. They got thrown in prison. Then they got placed in front of a mob. They were intimidated. They were severely threatened. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. So what they do? They go back and they pray. God, you're still the ruler of all things. God, you're still the sovereign ruler. That You are the one who has all authority and all power and the creative power. You are the one that made heaven and earth. You are in control of this. They didn't go home and say, why is this happening to me? I'm trying to do what's right. Why did you allow them to be mean to me? Why did you allow them to persecute me? Why do you allow them to hate me? Guess what? Jesus never hid that. He said in John 15, they hated me. They're going to hate you. They go home and they praise God. You are still the one who is in authority in heaven and earth. Verse 25, they acknowledge the inspiration and power of the authority of the scriptures. He said, by the mouth of your servant David, and then he quotes from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered together. They're acknowledging that the scriptures is right. Then the, when the gospel is preached that the nations are going to rage. They're going to be bitter. They're going to be angry. It's going to upset their lifestyle. And so they plot vain and empty things against God and God's people. And they took their stand. As you watch them do here, what are we going to do about these people? Let's severely threaten them. And they gathered together and they with one voice spoke up against God and against his Christ. What is true then in Acts chapter 4 stands true today. We acknowledge the fact the scriptures teach 
by inspiration that this is part and parcel of following God. So, they continue to pray. And we notice in verse 27 and 28, Truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do, listen to this, you talk about sovereignty, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Don't let us run and cower. Don't let us hide. Give us the boldness to speak. To speak in the name of Jesus. So in verse 31, this happened. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. So how's the church going to respond to the severe threats to no longer speak in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem? They're going to pray about it. They're going to praise God. And they're going to speak and they're going to speak boldly. And they will suffer the consequences for it. The reason I bring this up because I believe that this is a message of peace. When we follow Christ, we are people who bring a message of peace. We want reconciliation between God and man. And there's a remedy that has that there's been this divide and Christ has bridged that divide. He's mended that fence in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we bring the message to the world to have a remedy of sin and to, and to have hope beyond this life. And we're people of peace. We don't go out. We don't go looking for a fight. We don't go gather guns and swords and say, follow us or die. We speak peace. We know that we know there are those who will Reject that message of peace. May even be hostile and want war. This is how we respond in our current culture. We must fearlessly, we must boldly, we must faithfully fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us. To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Without fear and without favor. We speak the truth. We speak the absolute, complete, objective truth, the Word of God, in the spirit of love and humility as a people of peace. Suffer the consequences that come. I want to encourage you today, we bring you this message this morning as they did 2,000 years ago, to acknowledge your sins, call them what they are, and repent of them. Be reconciled to God in Christ. Turn to Him. Do a 180 on your sinful lifestyle and come to Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing the great name of Christ, being immersed in water for the remission of your sins, placed in the body of Christ. Pick up your cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, and follow Him faithfully right into eternity. Members of the church, maybe we've grown weak, maybe 
hearts have grown callous. Maybe we're here in body, but not in spirit. Maybe we haven't been as faithful and true to the message of God as we're supposed to be. Let me encourage you to come to Christ, to repent of those things, to rekindle the fire, to start over, begin to walk with Christ again, boldly, fearlessly, in truth and love, speaking the name of Jesus, even when they say stop. Whatever your need is, obey the gospel today. All together, we stand and encourage.